This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. And joining me, I'm Flick Ford, by the way. I'll be your host. Joining me in the studio is Lisa Kovacvich. Hey, Flick. Hey. Good welcome. to be back. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. Um, and Paul Anthony Nelson. Hey, Paul. Hey, Flick. How are you? I'm good. I can't really see you. Even though we're all in the studio, you're just out of my mm-hmm. eye line. <laughs> and I don't have my headphones together yet. So oh, we'll... no. <laughs> It's a work in progress, but I am back in the studio. It feels nostalgic. <laughs> this is what you get when you've been on, you know, holiday for a few days. It's just like our mind goes to mush. We do this every week and uh, <laughs> it's all kind of falling apart. Um, later on, we're all in the studio, but later on we're going to have a special guest appearance via Zoom from Cerise Howard. He's going to help us out with a review. We're going to be doing new releases, which I'm very excited about. We all got to return to the cinema this week. Um, we're going to review Florian Zeller's moving depiction of dementia, starring Olivia Coleman and Anthony Hopkins in The Father. Then we're going to track down a stolen painting in the Norwegian documentary The Painter and the Thief. And finally, we'll call Saul, I mean, Cerise, <laughs> for a remote review of the home invasion action, Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk. Um, so without further ado, shall we get into our very first film? What's the matter, Dad? Strange things going on around us. Don't worry, everything will sort itself out. Saw it in his eyes, didn't know who I was. It was like I was a stranger to him. Just did something to me. I don't know what she's cooking up against me, but she's cooking something up. What are you talking about, Dad? I'm not leaving my flat! I am not leaving my flat! This really is my flat. Isn't it? That was, of course, Florian Zeller's uh, recent drama The Father, which tells the story of a man struggling to uh, understand the shifting pains of reality. Um, It's based on an award-winning and and highly acclaimed play um, by Florian Zeller um, and stars Olivia Coleman as Anne and uh, Anthony Hopkins as Anthony, her father, who's an 80-year-old man who is... um, Well, the role was actually (laughs) specifically written for him, but it's based on him coming to terms with a change in their housing situation. Um, I saw this just last week. Um, Lisa, you when did you catch this? I, I watched it two nights ago. Yeah. 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 Still very, very fresh? It's very fresh, yeah. And I've been um, 
yeah, ruminating on it for a few days, which is which is the sign of a good film that stays with you for that long. Um, you know, it was funny. I, I didn't. I actually. It's getting a lot of praise, and and rightly so. But I didn't. Um, I didn't love it as much as most of the critics have loved it. Although over time, I've loved it more. I think. Um, the more I've ruminated on it, the more I've mm. come to sort of uh, gain from from the experience. Um, it's a very, I mean, that uh, trailer that you just played there um, is great. In in the, I think I think maybe that was why I was, I was a little bit disappointed because when I watched the trailer, it really plays like a psychological thriller. Mm. Um, yeah, my friend <coughs> had that same reaction. Of yeah, like, I hadn't actually watched the trailer before I saw it, right. so I didn't have this. That kind of any preconceptions, no, yeah, which is good. Um, so I did, and and, you know, uh, psychological thrillers are my bag. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and 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 so uh, it it does deliver on that though in a in a really clever way. Um, and and it doesn't as well, and it does sort of uh, get a little repetitive. I felt. at times, which is, you know, part of the purpose, given that we're dealing with dementia. Um, but look, it's it's a very clever, look, it's very clever on a lot of levels. On, on one level, I felt like uh, you really get insight into Anthony Hopkins' character, who is the dementia sufferer. I feel like a lot of films that deal with this subject matter, I'm thinking of um, Julianne Moore in Still Alice, for example. Um, I feel like the character starts to slip away from us during the course of those types of films. Whereas in this one, it's, it's so present. You, you are in, you are seeing the world through his eyes, through his Mm. perspective, um, which is really wonderful and effective and arresting. uh, And which is where we draw that sort of um, psychological thriller that, um, that disorientating, like he's being gaslit almost by all the people mm. in his lives. Uh, in one scene, he'll be talking to his daughter and in the next scene, another woman will walk through the door carrying a, a chicken and he's like, who are you? And it's a different actor. Mm. Um, and she's like, well, I'm, uh, it's me. It's Is it Anne? The, yeah. It's your daughter. Um, and he's terrified. He's like, no, you're not. What is everybody doing? And so you feel that too because uh, the, the, the cleverness of the of the, the scripting, I suppose, mm. and um, the staging is to uh, replace the same character with different actors so that you feel equally disoriented. And it's really difficult to, to gauge where the truth lies in this film, uh, which is very clever. However, my only sort of criticism is that I, I did start to feel like a little bit of a, of a trick and a clever one, um, but it was just... Uh, perhaps overly done like the rug gets pulled out from us so many times um which which is wonderful but it's just really difficult to keep your grasp on reality which is definitely the point because we're dealing with um dementia here however I just it meant that I felt like we never got deeper layers Mm, we were just sort of we just sort of were left on um this sort of one note um which was interesting given that the film's called The Father and there was not a great exploration of him as the father, it could have equally been called the son or the mother or the daughter, which I'd say Olivia Coleman kind of inhabited those two um, aspects of the familiar unit. Um, she has to mother her father through this dementia process, but she's also mourning the loss of her position as daughter and he eventually um, is reduced to, to son and, uh, you know, and helpless babe by the end. Mm. Um, so I, I loved all that. I love that all of that was there. I just felt that it didn't get... Uh, it didn't get um, detangled enough or something for me for it to be meaty enough because it did feel a, a little bit repetitive and I did it, it does make you aware that 
it's a play that we've, that has been adapted for the screen. For me, anyhow, what did you think, Paul? Yeah, I um, I largely agree. Um, I I think this is it's Florian Zellner. He's a he's a playwright, and this is a very assured directorial debut. There's real attention to detail here, and it is. It felt almost like a a emotional horror story for me. Like it's it's terrifying um absolutely and it's a bit of a mind bender as well um and it has this sort of he he really brings it to the gra- uh, the screen with uh, this austere grace um there are flashes of dark humor in here but it's mostly a pretty pretty serious film i love films where that have a small cast and every single member of the cast is a heavyweight Oh, yeah, it's definitely a chamber piece, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It's like, you know, there are seven actors. Like yeah. this one here, there's there's six actors and they're Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, Rufus Sewell, Mark Gatiss, Olivia Williams and Imogen Poots. And it's like they're all guns. So it's kind of gifted with this incredible cast who are all fantastic. But I do have to agree that it never quite completely transcends the stage trappings. Mm. And as it goes on, it feels more and more like a play. How And... By accentuating those sort of mystery elements of its of its central dilemma, as you said, um, Lise, um, who's real? What time is this? Who are you? Mm-hmm. Who are and that effect that maybe he's being gaslit? Maybe he's and we know he has dementia, but you know you're trying to work out what's real and what's not. And I feel like when the 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 second half or in particular the final act pivots to melodrama, mm. it doesn't. I don't know if it manages the shift as well. I was. It never provided that um, that emotional gut punch I feel like it was going for because I was, I think it's it, it starts off in this sort of more cerebral space, yes, more cerebral yeah. cold headspace, and then we go to pure emotion, and it's like no, I haven't been primed for this. I'm not quite there, and I'm not feeling it. Um, it's funny. My my partner said afterwards she feels like we kind of had a similar reaction. She was like, I feel like if I see it again, I'd probably start crying in the first half hour. Yeah, that's interesting. Because now that you know what's sort of coming. But mm. but yeah, I just found that it didn't quite pivot as strongly to that as as the performances deserve. Um, but I, I so in the end I came out of this more appreciative than moved. A lot of like a lot of the big Oscar sort of films this year, like like Nomadland, like Minari, I've been impressed but not wowed mm. by uh by this film. But but it it was still incredibly terrifying, and as a picture of the way, like I'm I've never lived. I'm thankfully I have never lived with anyone with dementia. I don't know exactly how dementia works, but looking at this film, I mean it, it's it's certainly a, um, a pungent kind of uh, depiction of what it may or may not be, and it's terrifying. Yeah, and 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 that is probably where it's most effective. Yeah, it's interesting that both of you comment on the horror elements of this. And I hadn't watched the trailer, as I said, so I didn't really have, um, yeah, those, those this idea of where it was going to go. But of course, setting it up and keeping it limited. Sorry, I just touched my mic. Limited to the house is such a classic horror trope, mm. and I think that it's worked to such masterful in such a masterful way in this film because there's the limitations not just of of that. Um, the mise-en-scene and, and the space and the way it becomes rep- like a repetitious sort of presence and, mm. and, it, and in a lot of ways menacing presence, the, the house and that repetition that we see. And also with rooms changing yeah. as well, shifting. Yeah, yeah the paintings moving. moving mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, the set design changes at one point with no explanation. Mm. We're all of a sudden perhaps in a different apartment but we're not sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and yeah. I suppose that's where we see those staged sensibilities that you were mm. talking about, Lisa. And 100%. I actually didn't mind those 
those kind of little reference points to the stage. I hadn't uh, realised it was based on a play when I was watching it and I only learnt that afterwards. So I could see it definitely afterwards and thinking about Hopkins' um, not only presence but just his monologues and all mm. of it is perfect for the stage, of course. Yeah, yeah. But I actually love that it was adapted to the screen because I think a lot of those micro gestures that play out, particularly on Coleman's face as the daughter, but also Poots and this rather small role but significant role as um, the nurse who comes to into the house. They're, it's those little micro gestures that I think is the real power of this film and it's really difficult to review The Father because I feel like it's too tightly entangled in my own emotional space. And so when I watched this, I watched this before I went over to visit my family recently and Hopkins actually, I don't know if it's just as he's getting older, but he's looking a lot like my dad these days. Wow. <laughs> um, so I Does that happen like to all men as they age? Maybe. Perhaps maybe all older white men. <laughs> I reckon. There's these scenes where he's padding about in his pyjamas and I just, you know, <laughs> physically he looks exactly like my dad. But I, I kind of disagree a little bit with what you're saying, Lisa, about not getting a sense of who he was as a man because I – I do think I got insights into that just in little ways and I probably need to re-watch it. Um, but I feel like there was little, small, very subtle references to his life before. And there's another sibling who is never really on screen very much. And she's this kind of shadow that it goes throughout the film. Mm. And I thought that it was really powerful that way in which um, – not only just a role reversal, which actually, now that I think about it, all three, three new releases that we're talking about tonight are all about role reversals mm. of some sort. Mm. Um, but that role reversal between daughter and father is so painful mm. and so beautifully captured. And I think that the, the casting, as you said, Paul, is exceptional. And I think that all of the people involved in this film are so... Um, treat the material with such reverence and are able to deliver these lines in a very believable way. But there's also, I really loved the fractured storytelling and that sort of bringing in, um, bringing us all into his mind and, and his experience of the world because I think it's too easy, particularly when people are struggling with mental health issues, for them to be seen as the other and, of course, you know, simple things where they might have moments of like oh, flashes of this is what it's like to have a mental health um, issue. But this whole film stays in that space mm -hmm. and it's quite a powerful thing to force us to sit with that experience. I don't think it's a pleasant experience. I did cry through the <laughs> most of it, I have to admit, and I saw it with two friends of mine who I think had a pretty similar response to me. Um, I, it was hard to tell from the crowd. I don't know that everyone was completely on it and I do think, similar to what you're saying, Paul, it does sort of sink into melodrama at points and maybe that takes away a little bit from what I actually think is a very universal experience mm. and kind of beautifully captured on, on screen. I feel like it's a difficult one to review because it feels too closely entangled to, to me but I wonder um, maybe in a few months it might be nice to revisit this and I wonder at the end of the year whether this will stand out to me mm. in the way that it is right now. Um, if anything, it's a wonderful study in masterful acting. I Not, really, yeah. <laughs> it is. honestly, Coleman, she, she won the award for um, The Favourite which is another favourite of Primal mm. Screen um, but she is exceptional. She matches Hopkins, who we all know is wonderful. So he's had a bit of a resurgence in, in 
you know, she's his Waterloo, isn't she? In a lot of ways, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, she's definitely the emotional heart of the Mm. film for me, anyway. Or the emotional warmth, I think, is what she is. She's, um, she's everything is uh, a sacrifice to her, which is, I think, why I was thinking about um, parental roles, her as the sort of mother role for him. I don't think that. I think you get a lot of a, a varied sense of who he is or was, but not as him as a father is what I was what I felt was lacking. But definitely, mm. I got a, a great sense of um, the colours and shades of Anthony Hopkins' character uh, throughout his life. Um, you know, he's he was maybe a macho guy. He was uh, a flirtatious guy. Uh, he could be cruel. He could be joyful. He could be funny. There's a, quite a funny mm. moment where he. Um, he really doesn't like his son son in law and and thinks that he's giving it away that his daughter's having an affair when in, in fact he's probably got that wrong um, yes. and he's like oh oh never mind we've oh, let the cat out of the bag it's really quite funny he's re- really cheeky and playful yes. and I think a lot of reviews have sort of uh, focused on how Anthony Hopkins is really um, t- pulling out of the bag all his acting tricks and drawing on a lot of characters that we've seen him play over the years it's mm. like this colourful cast of characters. In, in, in captured in this one performance is really quite um, clever, um, but I just never got a proper I never got a proper grip on um, on him, and, and I guess because you don't know what's real, so I yes. guess maybe that's why. Maybe it's because you're sort of left wondering: is this the sickness? Is this the disease? Or is this him? I don't know. Like, is his cruelty towards his loving daughter the disease? Or is it? Yeah. Or is, yeah. was he always like well, I, that? I, See, think- I like that. I like that there was that <clears throat> thin line of how mm. much is the illness and how much is he just a cantankerous guy? I, liked, yeah. I actually really liked how they played uh, ambiguously with that. And I think I got enough. I think I got, uh, and I, to me, I got an insight into him as a father in the way he regarded Olivia Coleman as to how he regarded the other daughter. Daughter, yes. And and how one would continually and, – and the way they'd sort of talk around her and the way yeah. he'd sort of treat. And it was like, yeah, I got a sense of definitely he had – you know, there's the favoured daughter and there's the less favoured daughter. Mm, and, yeah. and, and and both sides of him as a parent with that. Um, yeah, but I liked I liked the ambiguity with how much of how much of this is his personality and how much of him yeah. is this this horrible condition. And I think that has been true of of people with dementia that I've known, where you do have an element, especially if you don't know them that well, say mm. older older relatives of mine, where you think I don't <laughs> I don't know if this is yeah, like you were saying, Paul, is this the is this the disease or is mm. this the person? And, and is it an ampli- amplification? Yeah. Or is it, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I, I felt the um oh, what's the actor's name? Is it Hats? Uh, Rufus Seal. Rufus, Rufus Sewell, yes, um, he plays... Who is yes. fantastic. He was wonderful. I actually felt yeah. that he was um, a really much-needed sort of uh, break in the uh, the repetitive form yes. that was happening in this film. There's a wonderful scene between him and um, Anthony Hopkins' character as a father uh, where they have this real sparring. He's the only one that will stand up to him mm. and, and in his frustration he's married to um, this person with dementia's daughter and um, he just wants Ty's cut. He's destroying their lives mm. in his mind, and and it could be seen as selfish. But you can feel his frustration yeah. as well, and then how cruel he is to yes. him is 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 heartbreaking. Mm. But it's something that I think a lot of us will have seen if we haven't had anything to do with this kind of area of people mm. aging. Um, and also that, also that question of elder abuse, which really absolutely. I don't think I've seen it depicted in such a engaged way before on screen. The only other sort of 
similar film I can think of is Hanukkah's Amour. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. You know, occupies a similar space, but is a lot, like I think that this has a lot more lightness, as you were saying. Yes. Like the father has these much livelier performances and, yeah, goes into a different space. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's an important film, uh, touching on that, in, in terms of um, yeah, how we treat our elderly and yeah. particularly in relation to, like, recent inquiries into aged care. I think it's a, it's a wonderfully important film for for empathy Absolutely. and for giving us insight into something that we're, you know, if, if we live long enough, a lot of us may have to navigate and it's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, the Father is currently screening at all major and independent cinemas in Australia. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You're tuned in to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson, Lisa Kovacevic and myself, Flick Ford. We're doing a whole bunch of new releases, finally. Um, it's always so much, so exciting returning back into the cinema. I still get a kick out of it. <laughs> returning to the cinema and the studio. Yes. It's double so whammy. bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> we discussed um, The Father, which is um, a new film by uh, Florian uh, Zeller. And now it's time for our second film. Two paintings were stolen from a gallery in Norway today. The paintings were stolen in broad daylight. I don't know what to think. We have identified the thief. We have not found the painting. Uh, we had his name from the court papers. Hello? You might know who I am. I'm just a curious person. What made you do it? It was your masterpiece. So that is The Painter and the Thief. Um, the film follows artist Babora, um, an artist forming who forms a relationship or a friendship of sorts with a man who stole her artwork. Now, the Guardian, uh, the, the director, Benjamin Ree, has said that in, uh, in, the, in a recent interview in The Guardian, has said that he aimed to explore the questions of what do humans do in order to be seen and appreciated and what it takes for us to help and see others. This is a rather curious documentary. Um, it's already been sort of had its um, been earmarked for a whole heap of awards. Um, the, most, of the, most of the filming took place back in 2014 um, there's also heaps of um, photographs and, and different um, audio um, that's used throughout this film. Um, Paul, what did you make of this? Well, other than trying to refrain from singing the title to the tune of Wolf Mother's The Joker and the Thief, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is more of a problem than you'd expect. Um, yeah, I thought this was an interesting enough human drama um, with some beautiful stolen <clears throat> moments of its own about... Using a theft to springboard into an examination, for me, of it seemed to be about what artists and subjects take from each other in terms of the artistic process. Um, you know, and, you know, what, what, a, what an artist takes from a subject, what a muse um, gives and takes from, from an artist. Um, but when watching documentaries, I want to be absorbed in the story and not constantly thinking about how the film was put together. Mm. And this was a film where that was extremely distracting. It was. Um, and it's it's a bit of a trend because we saw a, a doco uh, a few weeks ago called The Truffle Hunters, which was almost entirely, which was very sweet and gentle, but almost entirely full of reenactments. And this felt like that. 
Um, so much of this film is clearly reconstructed. And I know they've been filming for six years, but I think there's a lot of, and, and reenacted after the fact that it's frequently, yeah, frequently distracting and also raises the question at times of how much control the artist had over the project mm, and, and how yes. much of it is a bit of a self-promotional vessel for her art. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, is this is this a, a, a form of promotion for her? And I'm not saying the film's fraudulent or that uh, uh, Barbara Kisilkova is using it as a platform, but these thoughts and, and more couldn't help crossing my mind throughout the film. And mm. to the point where it's just like the story just started to kind of bounce off me. And it was like I, I'm just seeing the artifice here. Like, like there are scenes in couples therapy mm. and scenes in prison yeah. cells and it's like they wouldn't have gotten like it's so funny you say that mm. Paul I know I was I was thinking that prison cell scene you're talking about I was like how did they have access and to be there at the moment when he's trying to call her and yeah. prison therapy the, yeah yeah, so yeah. Like the timing is very suspicious and I oh, yeah yeah I think that that stood out to me as times well. when he's on crutches and clearly healing but it's like you're moving a lot better than you would have moved I mean I know you're a pretty fit guy but mm. but there's times like mm, I think this is I I don't know. This is and, past, yeah. and so, yeah, it, it, it's sort of the, the, the in-the-moment authenticity of certain, I'd say moments, but more like slabs of the film, yeah. uh, seemed questionable at best and dubious at worst. Um, like there was even a moment later when she's telling him about um, finding a certain painting and I'm, I swear to God in the corner of the screen that very painting is on the wall behind him. No. Like and it's we like I'm looking, yeah, because I'm looking. And it's like <laughs> that grass. None of her other pictures have grass it's in like them, and that. this has grass. And it's like I'm wow, that mm, would be incredible. Yeah, like I don't know. It's just it's like a sequel, Detective like Paul. Paul. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, the viewer uncovers the painter and the thief. Yeah, the viewer, the painter and the, the thief, thief yeah. and his lover. <laughs> But yeah, it's but it's central tale of this unlikely friendship, um, and on Barbara's side, perhaps an un- unrequited love, um, that sort of gives the film a very you know very kind of pat ending. But mm. I won't say what. But mm. that developed from you know this sort of yeah hand to mouth artist having these things stolen, having these li- mm. livelihoods stolen, and then coming around to forgiveness. I, th- I feel like it is at least an intermittently intriguing story of forgiveness and the power of art to transform, reveal, and process our experience. But, yeah, too much of this film's artifice just kept poking me in the eye. Mm. It's funny because the film is, uh, in in one sense, is supposedly about, um, you know, the way that we exploit one another, the way that the artist exploits the subject matter uh, and the subject matter's desire to be seen. So there's this sort of symbiotic relationship Mm. there. But, yeah, like you, Paul, I felt like that, the filmmakers almost needed to acknowledge their own role in the exploitation, mm-hmm. that the the camera yeah. needed to be turned on them at some point. Or I just feel like there's so we're too far into this this genre now that you can't acknowledge your hand in it, you know, as a filmmaker. Mm. It's interesting that they sort of there's a distance there, but like you say, Paul, it's very it's a very distracting kind mm. of manipulation that's going on as well. Like um, unless you're a Frederick <laughs> Weissman who is completely detached. And yeah. it's like just literally sets Fly up cameras the and go. Yeah. yeah. But the, I think you're right. But yeah. also the cinematography doesn't match that style anyway. Absolutely no. not. So it wouldn't – it's not at all what it's – yeah. Sorry, Lisa, continue. No, yeah, no, I, I was not, not going anywhere further with it than that. For, for me, um, I think I was expecting more of a reckoning – 
between the art world and the world of criminality because the way it's sort of set up and I did the one thing I did read was this interview, possibly the one that you mm. referenced at the start, The Guardian, um, and Barbara um, Kislakova, the artist, says that she wanted to sort of pose the question, what happens if you allow the person you should condemn to come into your life? And so I thought... Uh, you know, from again, from watching the trailer, I had expectations, um, and I think I, I thought that there was going to be this kind of reckoning with the high art world uh, and the world of criminals. Um, yeah. But but I, but I think yeah, which which might have made for a more compelling piece for yeah. me to be honest. But instead, these two characters they seem to almost inhabit the same kind of space, and that was one rooted in trauma. Uh, for for her, it was a traumatic and abusive relationship, and for him, it was a traumatic childhood. Um, you know, one of neglect and loss um and so I yeah I I guess um it just sort of fell flat for me uh however and and interestingly actually the one interesting thing about that was they're both kind of locked out of the art world in in one way or another for her economically so she is sort of a struggling artist she's not she's not well known and she sort of says at the start of the film when her artworks are stolen um by the thief um She's confused as to why he he would steal her work when she's yeah. when it's not really mm. worth that much. Mm. She's no no Picasso, mm. she says. Um, I mean, they're incredible artworks. So she is mm. an incredible artist. They're mm. these sort of photorealistic, monstrous pieces um, that deal with very dark subject matter. And working a lot with light and shadow. She reminded me yes. of the comic book. There's a comic book painted graphic artist named Alex Ross. Yeah, and her work reminded me a lot of that. Oh yeah, yeah, mm. I can see that. Um, yeah, even Hockney, um, in a way, even though he's as much brighter. But, um, mm. yeah, I, I, so, that, I mean, that was interesting that they were both sort of locked out of the artwork. They're both fringe dwellers in a, in yeah. a, in a, in a, way, a, a way, but that probably wasn't explored properly mm. <laughs> no. or satisfyingly yeah. enough for me. Yeah. I I'm, actually, was... I'm actually quite relieved that both of you had the same, similar, very similar hesitations as I had because I watched this having read that you know how how well received this has been and mm. high, how highly acclaimed it's been and i watched the trailer as well and thought wow this is this looks really interesting such a fascinating premise and i was very on board with what i thought was going to be like you said lisa this exploration of criminality and the art world and a question of how you deal with the loss of you know how frustrating and how painful to have something you care about you put years of work into and it gets stolen like cut out quite violently from its frame like Mm. i expected barbora to have more anger and mm. more rage and then for there then to be this kind of peace peacemaking and i did look into it because i was also really suspicious mm. similar to you paul about like hang on how much how when what is the timing of when this was filmed mm. and when they get on board with the story so the lee uh, he was already a friend of um barbara's that's, so, that's the filmmaker yeah, yeah yeah the director so they began filming back in 2014 um, the courtroom recordings are the actual recordings, but, but I mean, audio. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was okay because that was hmm. sort of replayed with artwork yeah. <laughs> to stand in for people. You yeah, know, that, I thought that was a nice motif. And yeah. obviously, the CCTV footage is is real. Yeah. Um, but it's really difficult. It's really cloudy mm. <laughs> as to when exactly, with the timings and the narrative that they want to tell. I personally felt like. It was a story I wanted to be, I wanted to go into and wanted to follow. And I feel like it was just filled, felt very forced. Mm. I wasn't actually on board with her emotionally, even though she kind of in those yeah, counseling sessions with her partner or husband or mm. whoever, um, 
you know, it kind of has this uh, intimacy to it, but it felt so surface level and mm. so felt kind performed. of almost yeah, performative, and it felt like a, a kind of Euro reality show, like mm. a very highbrow one. But still, <laughs> there was this element of them talking about you know the ethics of the what ethics, she's doing. Um, there was an undertone of jealousy from her partner about this like growing obsession with this criminal, mm. um, who also acted quite awful <laughs> and yet we're to believe that he's this charismatic wonderful man and mm. I don't know if I was completely on board with that I felt mm. particularly sorry for his girlfriend in this in this story and he's really I, has no presence except she yeah. sits for a for a portrait at some point yes. but you'd otherwise and later, nothing. later raised. raised yes yes <laughs> yeah. yes yeah and I feel like that punchline ending was really just sat badly with it was me. tacky I yeah. thought yeah. Yeah. I thought so too yeah. and it just on the whole felt... Felt screen written. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just, I was just not on board with it and I wanted yeah. so badly to like this film. I wonder if it's and that problem, that mashup between reality TV, like you've, mm. you've just um, sort of pit there and film where we do, people are expecting constructed narratives out of yeah. documentary when that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, I feel like, yeah. but I feel like with but seeing the truffle hunters in this in such close proximity and the, one of the first times I mentioned it was, uh, I saw it was in a film called... Um, Oh, a film called, like nobody's heard of it. The Oscar-winning film Searching for Sugar Man. <laughs> a little known <laughs> A little known film. Uh, it's like saying a film called Star Wars. Yeah. Um, but Searching for Sugar Man, it was like it was clearly manipulated and constructed. It's yeah. like, yes, I've heard of this guy. Like he's not. Mm. And, and I feel like with, yeah, with this and Truffle Hunters in particular, it, it's getting to this thing where it's like, there's like if something is a dramatic reenactment, it should be clearly so. If something yes. is, you know, recollected, like interviews, fine. Mm. But we're getting into this where filmmakers shaping these mm. scenes and recreating it's murky, these murky territory. really murky yeah. where we're getting into filmmaking, and it's like, well, just make a biopic. Yeah, yeah. I also didn't. I don't know that I really liked the artist that much. I found no. that she often felt. Very much uh, quite selfish. She A bit manipulative. Her, yeah, yeah, and she kind of seemed to be attracted to him in a way that was how can this person be of use to me? That's and right. kind of this forced intimacy for someone who really had had what sounds like a really tra quite traumatic past. I don't know. It felt very manipulative, uncomfortable. Mm. I know a lot of people love this film, so they're probably going to be really crushed <laughs> by our review. But if you are interested in seeing The Painter and The Thief, it is currently screening at independent cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Melbourne's own Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Lisa Kovacevic, <laughs> Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford. We're doing a whole bunch of new releases. At the start of the show, we did The Father um, and just before that song, we did The Painter and the Thief. Heard you had some excitement last night. I wish they'd have picked my place, you know? Why didn't you take him out? I was just trying to keep the damage to a minimum. Yeah, how's that working out for you? You okay? Because you don't look okay. There's a long dormant piece of me that so very badly wants out. So that is nobody. 
which is based on an idea um, by Bob Odenkirk, who actually dealt with a home invasion himself um, by trapping trespassers in the basement. Um, And he's really frustrated by um, how the authorities dealt with the situation. And he kind of wanted to think about what it would be like if he took the matters into his own hands. Um, So I didn't get a chance to watch this this week. Um, However, and neither did you, Lisa. No, no, I'm out. out. (laughs) Both been bad students. But luckily, and I'm going to hope that this works well because we're all in the studios but we have studio but we have a special guest Cerise Howard on Zoom so Cerise can you let's see if this works Sure. Is it oh, working? Technology. I'm just going to swivel She has a big dialogue board above her face, <laughs> oh, though, yeah. covering her face, though, which is, this is weird. This is reminding me. I've just started recently rewatching Futurama, and it's kind of reminding me a little bit of um, those <laughs> famous is. famous heads in the in the glass. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a compliment. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's not like the Joker. That <laughs> television there is. <laughs> Um, we probably should be recording this as a video for our, yeah. for our listeners. Um, Cerise, thank you so much for joining us and for basically taking um, the weight off Lisa and I because we didn't get a chance to watch uh, Nobody this week, but I understand you did. So what did you make of the film? Well, I hope you get a chance to see it yet. It's a hoot. Um, uh, I didn't know that the backstory you just described about this being a, a project actually dear to Bob Odenkirk's heart. That, that was something he was uh, instrumental in hatching. I have been curious about its backstory, which I haven't researched, uh, noticing that it's um, a, a young Russian director. Yes. Uh, Ilya Naishvila. Uh, hmm. Not a, a particularly Russian surname, but definitely a, a young Russian filmmaker. And one of the things I admire most about this film is that now that Hollywood has gone back to delighting and having notionally Eastern European characters as villains, here we've actually got an actual Eastern European playing an Eastern European <laughs> And it kind of makes a difference. It's not Kenneth Branagh in Tenet doing some appalling mimicry of a, a villainous Eastern European accent. It's actually the great, the, the truly great Russian actor, Alexei Soroblyakov, who people might remember from uh, Andrei's Vagintsev's film Leviathan, who was oh, the lead in that. Yes, I love that film. And he's completely captivating in this. He's just got such incredible presence, um, proper villainy. But, <laughs> but also one of the greatest entrances where he oh, walks into the yeah. film like a complete don't F with me badass and then proceeds to step on stage and do the goofiest karaoke dance <laughs> number <laughs> known to man. Yeah. Yeah, before showing us a little more about what he's really all about. Mm. Um, It's actually quite a a labyrinthine plot. It's not quite as simple as suburban dad goes bonkers to exact revenge upon some home invaders. The backstory, I won't necessarily go into too much detail about because it's quite interesting how it's all teased out. But it does... um, it, it does assume preposterous dimensions, much as the uh, the John Wick films did, which I, I gather there there's something of a kindredness there. Mm. Paul, do you know what it is? A, it's a the same in same screenwriter, and, same screenwriter. And yeah. isn't aren't they meant to exist in the same universe? I thought I'd heard that. I did not know anything mm. about that, but same writer, and he's very big on building the John Wick universe. So I would not be surprised. <laughs> I think there's a uh, they share a producer as well who also produced Atomic. Blonde. It's a female oh, producer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, who she, so she also does female-driven action films yeah. as well. Yeah. I really enjoy, enjoyed it. Mm. Just as a side note, um, Paul, what did you make of it? Yeah, I I'm with Cerise. This 
and and I'm very and I I think you dig it too, least, but but you in particular, fan of fight films, trademark uh, uh, flick forward, would <laughs> would really enjoy this gloriously smashing ultraviolet action comedy. So it's the director. So Ilya Nyshula directed the uh, for better or worse, the world's first um, POV camera action film a few years ago, a film called Hardcore Henry. Because oh, um, he became GoPro in his head or something. Yeah, because he became very <laughs> he became very famous for a music video that used the same technique, a Russian music video um, in in 2014, and the one you would have seen it on YouTube. It was everywhere, and he got hired to direct Hardcore Henry on the back of that. And he's been trying to develop films since. And it's it's interesting because he said in interviews he doesn't didn't want to be known as the POV action guy. He did it for the clip and thought it was great. And then of course. Uh, all the studios would just offer him that and he wanted to kind of get away from that. So he's sort of gotten away from it here. And in something that's more equally absurd but more definitely uh, comic. Um, so between uh, the the the, yeah, the director of Hardcore Henry, the writer of John Wick, who both borrows from but equally takes the piss out of those films yeah. um, in this and teaming with um, the enormously cast against type um, Bob Odenkirk. I love Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> so great. As this kind of baked-in badass attempting to live a quiet suburban existence. And it's, you know, and, and it, it, but it, those, the com- combination of those three talents gives this se- seemingly, this kind of toxic fantasy of one seemingly average dude, uh, you know, messing up macho dickheads, violent bullies, and murderous Russian crime lords. <laughs> but these talents give this film the kind of Looney Tunes sort of quality that it absolutely needs and it makes it this sort of thrilling guilt-free fun because it is completely ridiculous and by the end it does take on Bugs Bunny versus Donald Duck kind of proportions (laughs) Um, and yeah the violence is look away grisly but also cartoonishly absurd the plot springs lots of well-worn but no less darkly delightful surprises. And I don't know about you, Cerise, but I could watch Bob, Rizza and Christopher Lloyd tear it up as a heavily armed action trio in like seven movies yeah it, it's a hoot it, it it's it's good too because it doesn't show its hand too soon mm. and and it's gritty and you think okay this might actually be based in some sort of uh recognizable real world that we inhabit as well and it seems to for at least the first 20 to 30 minutes it but does it, take it, a while doesn't it it like, does yeah. i think that really works to its advantage because we really need Need a Hutch, as is his name, mm-hmm. a, a perfectly preposterous character named Hutch Mansell. Yes. Um, we need him to actually just boil over. And it, the the editing's quite wonderful. To it, it just takes you through the grind of a, a day-by-day, oh. tedious week that's the same week in, week out, until the home evasion occurs and, it, and until... It's not not just that he initially doesn't respond to it or react, especially, and you know, he seems to have brought shame upon his family. And it, it just takes a little while for him to finally boil over, and it's incredibly satisfying when he does. And it's, um, <laughs> well, it's, there's some it's, lessons there for for filmmakers, I think. Just just pace yourselves. Don't don't go hard straight off. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting you say that it has that touch of reality, Cerise, because I was. Um, listening to an interview today about this film and the idea is based on a true uh, happening um, experienced by Bob Odenkirk, the actor that plays the lead in, in the um, in the film. Hutch. Yeah, Hutch. 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 Yeah, Hutch. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, 
yeah, so that central premise originated from some personal experience that he, his, him and his family went through. I have not seen the film. Um, but this – and so Bob Oden, Odenkirk is from Better Call Saul, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hence uh, my er- – Earlier, terrible joke about uh, calling Sarah. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> that I no see. one laughed at. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm too slow. But there's a literal line in the movie that where the cop goes, if it had been my family, I would have done something. And that was the line that the cop Triggered literally sent, said to Odenkirk. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. And they, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. I just read the, the funniest um, kind of uh, negative review, that, which is there is very few of this film, but one person said, Bob Odenkirk, that's like finding out that Parker Posey really wishes she was Pamela Anderson, a deflating insight. I think because it's his sort of, it's his um, action movie um, vehicle, this film, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 And it, it, yeah. yeah, it's so beautifully, but the way it's revealed as well, like you, you believe it by the end of it. You, you believe that he's this guy because the guy is so preposterously skilled. It's <laughs> well, but This is like a review based purely on the, um, the trailer, the trailer. could be like a spin-off <laughs> show to this. But um, <laughs> I, I thought that the trailer seemed to tap into um, sort of these ideas of masculinity yeah, and like same. these stereotypes about masculinity and what it means to mm. be a man, you know, obviously in yes. inverted. That, um, which uh, seems yeah. tone, which seems tone deaf to me. I was yeah. like, I don't know. Is this the time? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this it, film. It does kind of def- it does kind of satirize that though, because yeah. the whole thing is like his son. You like sorry, he said it's like he's brought shame upon his like his son's disappointed that he didn't take these people out and he didn't protect him and all this sort of thing. Mm. But it's sort of it it takes that and by amplifying it to this absurd degree, we see the ridiculousness of it. Right. Yeah. And then by the end, it's very... That's reassuring. Yeah. But it's... Because <laughs> there is a line like, you stole my daughter's bracelet or something. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my Kitty God. Cat Kitty cat bracelet. Kitty bracelet. Yeah. But it's all, And that's the, the absurdity of it. And yeah. there's also this, this beautiful um, uh, kind of thing where he... Um, it's about somebody just... Like like outside of the masculinity thing, it's about somebody suppressing what it is they're good at mm. and f- having that delight of returning mm. to doing the thing that they're good at, mm. which in his case is killing people. <laughs> well, it- also getting royally beaten up too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He cops so many beatings it himself does. in the process. So it's a real um, hero's journey. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, he's wonderfully rusty at the start. As well. It just gets the cre- – yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this is an absolute ball. But, again, it's, it's, I think the film flags pretty, pretty early. This, this is not to be taken okay. seriously. Right. But I've got to say I hard relate to the whole taking out the bins and missing the truck episode. <laughs> that is uh, me every week. Oh. I, yeah, my auntie used to send me, like, a text message being like, it's been night. I'm like, I don't need a reminder. But turns out I do need one <laughs> every week. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, Cerise and, and Paul, you've definitely convinced me to check this out. Um, it'll be on my list. I'm kind of excited about the idea of doing maybe a John Wick, Nobody and Atomic Blonde um, trilogy. That would know, be great. Just sit down for a nice little movie marathon. And for primal screen historians, I like I, I do like that Cerise has joined us tonight because, you know, the keen listeners will remember the jo- the episode we call the John Wick <laughs> Hour in which we talked about John Wick 3 Parabellum for what must have been at least half the show. Oh God. So it, this feels right having you on here with us. There was quite a lot of love for that film, as I recall. Um, yeah. But, you know, keep, Look, I don't know if there is any any truth to that supposition before that maybe this does inhabit the same universe as John Wick. Um, imagining Keanu and, and Bob Odenkirk in the same film as both of them as action heroes is 
a very surreal prospect, um, perhaps a very entertaining one to um, and, envision. And throw Atomic Blonde um, Charlie's Theron in there as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's Cold War action in that one as well, which is a, a curious thread that's emerging then. Um, mm. I can't remember. The, the villains in the John Wick films ended up being from all over the place, if I recall, but uh, mm. correctly. Mm. And Atomic and- Blonde also had a wonderful soundtrack from memory. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there are some, are some <laughs> mad needle drops in this film. There's the uh, heartbreaker from Pat Benatar gets a workout in a car yeah. chase. And... For listeners, if you are going to be, well, maybe Lisa and I can finally get around to watching the film that we're actually reviewing, which <laughs> yeah. is Nobody. And luckily we had Cerise join us via Zoom and Paul was, um, <laughs> Paul was the one good student who did actually watch the film. And it turned out to be my favourite film of the week. How oh, crazy is that? Oh, wow. <laughs> that is high praise indeed. Um, so if you'd like to see Nobody, it's currently screening at all major cinemas. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson, Lisa Kovacevic, and via Zoom, uh, we had Cerise Howard uh, and myself, Flick Ford. Um, I just realised I muted Cerise there. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, we were doing all new releases, which was a real treat. Uh, we opened with The Father. Uh, we then reviewed The Painter and the Thief. And just now we reviewed Nobody. Uh, you can also subscribe to Primal Screen, um, a podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcast. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne, who edits our Primal Screen podcast. I've been panelling that Carl will undoubtedly be back on the decks soon. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 